Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. When you're there, please say amen. Amen. All right, let's read it. Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 21, reading down through verse 31. And it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, We uphold the law. I want to preach to you this morning on this theme from Romans chapter 3, the death of boasting in the death of Jesus. The death of boasting in the death of Jesus. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this text. We pray as we come into it, Lord, that you would help us, that you would speak to us, speak through this To our hearts, shape us, God. Fashion us. I pray that you would help me preach your word, not merely my ideas. I pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and to his glory and for our good. Amen. The death of boasting in the death of Jesus. The death of boasting, everybody say boasting, so I know you're with me, in the death of Jesus. Now, John Owen's book has a better title. It's The Death of Death in the Death of Christ, borrowing from his title. It's a better title because the death of death is even better than the death of boasting. But part of the way we die is dying to self. Part of the way death dies is through our boasting being put to death. And we're going to see that this morning. A man had bought a small foreign vehicle, and the car's gas mileage made him pretty proud of himself. His friends quickly grew tired of his incessant bragging about his car's gas mileage. And as the Grand Rapids Press tells the story, they explain that his friends decided to have some fun with this guy. Every day, one of the friends would secretly go into the parking lot where his car was and put a couple gallons of gas into the tank. And quickly over time, the man's boasting went up to, uh, man, my car is getting 50 miles to the gallon. Like, I'm reading, it's getting 70 miles to the gallon. He got all the way up to 90 miles to the gallon. This is just unbelievable. And his friends loved watching him boast about the car's gas mileage. Uh, It was even more fun when they stopped adding gas into the car, and he was so confused. But let me turn this little story into a parable, all right? Verily, verily, I say unto you, using King James language here, The one who boasts in his own righteousness 
is like this fool who's boasting in his car's gas mileage when his friends are adding fuel to the car, meaning he's boasting about something that his car cannot do. He's boasting about the work of something or someone else. Boasting about the work of someone or something else. Romans chapter 1 through 3, we, we've been walking through Romans. If, if you are uh, missed a couple, you can watch previous sermons online. But we are three chapters in now. We're finishing chapter 3. And in the first three chapters of Romans, what we see is this main big theme that all people are depraved. It's this doctrine of total depravity. It's really built in these first three chapters of Romans. God, through Paul, is building a foundation for the gospel message. We can't know that we need the gospel message unless we know that we need the gospel message. Are you with me? This has been sort of the theme of most of our sermons thus far. We are not righteous on our own. But there is like this secondary theme through Romans one through three, and that is that there are people who believe to be self-righteous. There are people who believe to be good enough. There's people who believe that because they, in Paul's day, Jewish uh, leaders who follow the law, because they follow the law of God, then they are okay with God that they have, they have a, what we would call a works-based righteousness, that they are in and of themselves righteous, good enough. I'm good enough for God, if it, meaning if, if I'm moral enough, then I'm right with God. If I'm ethical enough, then I'm right with God. If I'm nice enough, then I'm right with God. If I'm responsible enough, then I'm right with God. If I'm for the right causes, then I'm right with God. If I stand with the right people, then I'm right with God. If I come from the right family, then I'm right with God. This is the secondary theme that's, that's leading Paul on this journey of saying, no, you're not. And so today, we've got to put it this way, we've got to recognize that some people, maybe even in this room, feel pretty good. I could put it this way, some people believe that they deserve heaven. I would say this, most, most of us in our flesh, in our worldly condition, believe that we deserve heaven. Now, you might say, well, wait a second, explain that to me. Why would you say most people believe that we deserve heaven? Well, let me put it like this. You're scrolling through Instagram. I'm with you in this, all right? Scrolling through Instagram, you see that, that Tahiti vacation, you know, like the whole little huts that are sitting on stilts over water. And you, and, and you think, man, like, uh, I deserve a week, just one week on stilts over water. Or, um, you know, we, we are going through this endless grind of life. You feel like your life is just work. Come home, clean the house, laundry, prepare some dinner, clean up, go to bed, tomorrow, do it all over again. And you think to yourself, I deserve an easier life than this. Now look, there's nothing wrong with a vacation, and there's nothing wrong with a simpler life. Some of you need to simplify your lives. Some of you need to schedule and save for a vacation. That's fine. But what concerns me is, are these two words, I deserve. I deserve a nicer house. I deserve a white picket fence. I deserve respect on the block. I deserve that vacation in Bora Bora. I deserve a new pair of J's. I deserve a job that pays more money. And what we're saying when we say I deserve is essentially this. I deserve more than somebody else. 
Meaning, I deserve a nicer house than the person who's living in a simpler house. Meaning, I deserve nicer clothing than the person who's wearing raggedy clothing. And this leads us to what? Happiness? No. I deserve leads us to a life that is unhappy. Because all we do is look around and say, life is unfair. I don't get what I deserve. And so we complain. We're unhappy. I want you to be happy this morning. All right? So happiness, your happiness is my goal, and I believe it is God's goal for you this morning. And to get there, we are going to go on a journey with Paul into Romans chapter 3, into the deep recesses of our salvation. And what we discover here is a remedy for our pride. A remedy, ultimately, for our unhappiness. Here's the main thesis of my sermon today. It is this. If you want to write it down, you get the whole thing. Since our salvation is based on God's righteousness, not ours, we have no room to boast. Let me say that again just in case you missed it. Since our salvation is based on God's righteousness, not ours, we have no room to boast. These verses that we are entering into are called by some scholars the most important paragraph ever written down. I want you to feel the weight of what we're studying today. We're going, like I said, into the deep recesses of our salvation this morning to see the righteousness of God in our salvation, leaving us with no room to boast. So with eagerness, Paul moves into verse 21 of chapter 3. Paul has already addressed the righteousness of God in chapter 1 as he talks about the righteousness of God being seen against the, uh, uh, mankind in his wrath but Paul is so eager to talk about where that wrath ultimately was placed for his beloved. And so Paul then, with eagerness, in verse 29, writes, But now, but now, or finally, here we go. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Manifested. Everybody say manifested. Manifested. What does that word mean? Manifested means to make something that is invisible visible. So, for example, uh, to use a negative example, if, uh, if one hates his brother, the manifestation of hate is to pull out a gun and kill his brother. That is to make an invisible reality visible, or to use a positive analogy, if a, a, a woman and a man love one another, the manifestation of that love is the marriage union and the marriage bed. It is the, the picture, it is the putting on display of something that is invisible, so that it is, it is to be seen. That's what manifestation means, and so what Paul is telling us is that something has happened which has manifested the righteousness of God. This invisible righteousness that we cannot see has actually in, in some way through a certain event been put on display, been made visible. Are you with me? Yeah. Well, how is God's righteousness manifested? The rest of my sermon is going to be this. We're going to talk about how God's righteousness is manifested through salvation, all right? But I want to break that down. God's righteousness is manifested in, listen to this, the mode of salvation. Where do we see his righteousness put on display? It is in the mode of our salvation. Let me explain this to you in verse 21 and 22. Let me read verse 21 again. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. That's our word manifested right there. He tells us where it has uh, uh, not been manifested in its fullest extent. He says, apart from the law. 
The law here uh, in Romans 3 is a reference to the Old Testament, not merely the Mosaic law, but the whole of God's writings. And so what he's saying is, is that there's been something that has happened that was not yet recorded in the Jewish scriptures, or what we would call the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, apart from the law. And he also means apart from following the Mosaic law, following being, being obedient to the law of God. There's, there's a righteousness of God that has been made visible apart from the Old Testament. But then he goes on to say, just so you don't think, that he's minimizing the Old Testament. He says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Meaning, this righteousness that I'm talking about that was made manifest was the main theme of the law. From Genesis through Malachi, all of the law and the prophets were testifying to this moment that is to come where God's righteousness is put on display. And here he, he, he tells us the mode of salvation. He says, it is the righteousness of God through, what's the word? Faith. That's right. Through faith. Faith is our mode of salvation. Not works, but, say it. You see, some Jews in Paul's day in Rome would have argued that you are made right with God, you are saved by doing good works, if you're moral enough, if you're ethical enough, etc., etc. And Paul's saying that God's righteousness is manifested not through a works-based salvation, but through a faith-based salvation, through faith. And he repeats it throughout this text in verse 25, it's to be received by faith. In verse 26, the one who has faith. In verse 27, the law of faith. In verse 28, justified by faith. In verse 29, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Are you with me? You guys are welcome to talk back to me and encourage me and give me some fuel for this fire this morning, all right? He's saying God's righteousness has not been manifested by your good works. Not through telling you what to do and then you going about doing the good things that God told you what to do. He says that is not where we see the righteousness of God put on display. It's not through a works-based salvation. But I'm convinced that most of us think it is in our flesh again. If you've got good theology, you know the gospel, you don't think this or you're not a Christian, all right? But in our flesh, we default to this. I was watching a TikTok video the other day. Great place to find good theology, amen? <laughs> and uh, there was a certain video put out there by this guy who uh, 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 self-identifies as part of the LGBTQ community. He has left the church, uh, but he, he says that he has not left Christianity. And then he goes on to explain that, that uh, when, he, when he left the church, he left all the Christian rules. And he said, Christians follow all of these rules. And he said, that's not how you're made right with God. You're made right with God by God's grace. So there I'm like, well, wait a second. I actually agree with that. And then he goes on to say, it's much more simpler than the church tells you, all of these rules that you have to follow. He says, if you want to be right with God, let me quote it. If you want to be right with God, just start following Jesus and loving your neighbor. Did you, did you catch that? It's not about rules. It's about God's grace, so here's what you do. It's really simple. If you want to be right with God, just start following Jesus and loving your neighbor. Oh, that's easy. I'm like, yo, that's law right there. That's legalism right there. From someone who, you know, might look to be the most liberated individual is being crushed under the weight of legalism. You see, you see the problem. Works-based righteousness brings glory to Joel curse, but it doesn't bring glory to God. As a matter of fact, it doesn't bring glory to Joel curse because Joel curse could never achieve 
a works-based righteousness. And that's the point Paul's been trying to make. The root of boasting is is in our pride. The root of our pride is in our sense of self-righteousness. The root of our self-righteousness is in this idea that we can somehow make ourselves right with God on our own. But the Bible says we're saved by faith, not of works, Ephesians 2, 8, so that no one may, come on, boast. You see the connections here. Meaning if you're saved by works, you've got something to boast about. But God has created a mode of salvation in which we have no way to boast because it's all about his work and his righteousness. And we are just people who say, I don't have anything on my own. And we literally fall into the arms of God through faith. So the mode of our salvation displays God's righteousness. In verses 28 through 31, Paul then goes to deal with objections. He says, is God the God of the Jews only or also of the Gentiles? That's an objection that he might hear from somebody. Uh, Jews are saved by works, someone might suggest, while Gentiles are saved by faith. And Paul says, no, there's only one God, and there's only one mode of salvation. The circumcised are saved by faith, and the uncircumcised are saved by faith. The Jews and the Gentiles, Old Testament and New Testament, like there's only been one way for anybody ever to be saved, and that's by grace through faith. There is nobody in all of biblical history who was saved apart from their faith in God on their own, on their own uh, basis of self-righteousness. But faith in what? Faith in what? Because you might have somebody say, well, I'm a person of great faith. You know, how do you know you're going to be in heaven when you die? I'm 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 a man of faith. I'm 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 a person of great faith. Well, faith in what? You see, some people have faith in, 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 in faith because you have faith. I've got faith, and so faith saves me. Faith in faith. Faith in what? Well, he tells us. He says, faith in Christ Jesus. And so this is my second point. My first point was God's righteousness is manifested in the mode of salvation. My second point is that God's righteousness is manifested in the person of our salvation, in Christ Jesus. Who is Jesus? Our doctrinal statement of the Garden Church says this. I'll just read one sentence from it on Jesus. It says, we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man, listen to this, without ceasing to be God. This is why theologians call him the God-man. God incarnate, God of God, light of light, from the, before time began, Jesus was God, has always been God, never began as God, one with the Father, one with the Holy Spirit, became man and did not lay off his Godhead, his, his, his Godness, I should say, without ceasing to be God, having been conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin uh, Mary, in order that he might reveal God. So we look at Jesus, and we see God. He reveals God to the world. And redeem sinful man. Who he is, and his work. His work of redeeming sinful man. Listen, if your Christian testimony doesn't include Jesus, it's not a testimony. Well, it's not a Christian testimony. It might be your testimony, and you need to get saved. But it's not a Christian testimony if Jesus is not the highlight, if Jesus is not the star, if if Jesus is not the accomplisher of your salvation. Because our, our faith hinges on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The only way we're saved is because of Jesus. As uh, Alistair Begg said in this, this uh, video that went, went around social media, it's always going around social media for like two years now, uh, uh, Begg, Begg says, why should I uh, let you into heaven, someone might ask. 
And the answer is, is because the man on the middle cross, have you seen this? The man on the middle cross told me that I can come. Meaning our faith 100% hinges on the person and the work of Jesus. God's righteousness manifested in Jesus. But we got to keep going here. Thirdly, God's righteousness is manifested in the recipients of salvation. When you look at the kinds of people that God saves, it again highlights his righteousness. Look at verse 22, continued into 23. It says, for there is no distinction. Everybody say, no distinction. There is no distinction. Now, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, but he's making this broader point that there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, black, white, Latino, Asian, uh, rich, poor, inner city, suburban, uh, 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 United States of America, or Russia. There is no distinction among human beings in this way. Verse 23. What's the no distinction? You all probably know this verse. For all have sinned, and it falls short of the glory of God. That might be a verse if you grew up in Sunday school that you memorized as a child. And now you know its context. There is no distinction among anybody. Let me tell you why. This is the grounds for no distinction, because everybody's a sinner. This is his thesis statement for chapters 1 through 3. For everybody is a sinner and has fallen short of the glory of God. Glory of God is a, is a nickname here in this context for total communion with God. With God. If I could explain it this way, uh, the other day my son Chapman came down, comes down the stairs while I'm sitting in my chair doing my, my Bible, reading my devotions, and Chapman comes over and he's walking around doing his thing, looking for an electronic to get on. And then he walks over to me and says, can I have your phone? And I say, no. And then he just kind of stands there for a while. And then, and then Chapman says, and this is not typical for Chapman, all right? So this is why it's a big deal. Chapman says, can I sit in your lap? I'm like, yes, you can. So he sits in my lap and he lets me read the Bible to him. And it's this moment where we are glorying, all right, in a father-son relationship. This is the glory of parenting. When your child crawls into your lap, a moment of shared intimacy, a, a moment of shared uh, a safety and love and protection, the glory of God. The glory of God was once experienced by Adam and Eve. They walked in the garden in complete nakedness, not in a sexual way, but in a complete openness and a complete sense of, like, there's nothing between us and God. Safety, protection, love, it's a, it's a joy that the world has never known since the fall into sin. Because what happened was when they sinned, they immediately covered up. When they, they, sinned, they sinned, that glory of God was immediately lost. Well, it was experienced here and there throughout the Old Testament. Once a year in the Holy of Holies within the temple, a priest would, through the blood of a sacrifice, walk in there and just for a moment, just for a, a, a moment and one day a year would experience that intimacy with God, would experience the glory of God, would be in God's glory. Communion with God. Intimacy with God. But what God is telling us now through Paul in verse 23 is that because of sin, Every single one of us has fallen from the glory of God. You say, well, I don't even know what it's like to have joy in the presence of God. And, and I would answer to that, well, of course you don't because you've never experienced it. We can't know what's, what something is like without experiencing it. And so if we don't know Jesus, we don't know the joy of our salvation, of intimacy and love with God. Every human being, from Moses to Peter to St. Augustine to Martin Luther, all had fallen short of the glory of God. Every world leader from Alexander the Great to Nelson Mandela to Winston Churchill to Abraham Lincoln, all 
We're sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. Every celebrity of our day, from Justin Bieber to Wiz Khalifa to Will Smith and Chris Rock, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? Amen. From Joel Kurz to Eric Hill to his mother, Miss Bonita Hill, have all fallen short of the glory of God. Are you with me? This is our condition. We've all sinned. In our natural state, then, we are utterly disconnected from God. We do not know that joy of a father-son relationship. We don't know what that feels like in our flesh. We don't know the glory of God. Now, if... I'm going to my analogy with Chapman. If a father-son sort of, you know, the glory of parenting and the joy that that can bring to my heart, if something like that makes me happy, how much more so, are you with me, would the restoration of a relationship with God bouncing on my father's knee bring joy to my soul? Now, these, here's my point, are the kinds of people that God saves. These kind of people, us. Broken people who have fallen short of the glory of God. This makes much of his righteousness. Because God saves sinners. If we deserved heaven, it wouldn't bring glory to God. It would bring glory to us. It would make much much of our righteousness, not his. But God saves people that don't deserve it. And so, therefore, you, you see how this, this, this highlights the righteousness of God. So, if I could summarize this thus far, my sermon, God's righteousness is manifested in the mode of our salvation, in the person of our salvation, and in the recipients of our salvation. But, another objection I'm going to hear. Verse 26, Paul says that God is just. Well, how, how is God just? Like, how does the fact that God saves sinners allow him to remain just? If he's just, should not all sinners be condemned? How can God be just and save sinners? How does, in other words, saving sinners highlight his righteousness? It almost sounds like it would do the opposite. The fact that God would stoop down and rescue some sinners sounds like maybe God is is not actually as righteous as we thought he was because he allows sinners into his presence. But hold up. We're going into the inner recesses of our salvation this morning. Point number four, God's righteousness is manifested in the work of salvation. In the mode of salvation, in the person of salvation, in the recipients of salvation, and in the work of our salvation. Look at verse 24. He says, and are justified. We are justified, sinners, as a gift. All right, so it's something that's free, not earned. We're justified as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. A lot of theology here and not a lot of time. I got to move fast. You with me? Buckle up. Put on your thinking caps. Here we go. God's righteousness is manifested in his justification of us. Look at verse 24 again. He says, we are justified as a gift. This is repeated throughout. Verse 26, God is the justifier of the one who has faith. Verse 28, for we hold that one is just justified by faith apart from works of the law. Verse 29, God is the one who will justify. To be justified is to be acquitted. I remember some years ago, a friend of mine told me that he was excited about the fact that he was acquitted in a certain court case. And I asked him, I said, did you actually do the crime? And he said, yes. But the, but the lawyers couldn't prove it. You see, sometimes humans acquit, a human judge might acquit somebody, let them off the hook because they don't have all the facts, because it could not be proven. But God, but God is a, an all-knowing God. 
He knows all the facts. As a matter of fact, he could push play on the tape of every one of your sins, sins that you forgot about. God could be like, I can remind you right now. So, so if, if he's going to acquit us, it's not because of any deficiency with who God is. And so something about his justification of us, us, him declaring us to be in right standing with him, something about that says something else about his righteousness. Well, let's go on. God's righteousness is manifested in redemption. That's the next word he uses. In the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 24. Redemption, what does that mean? Well, suppose that you owed Mike Roach $1,000, and you can't pay him back, and Roach just kind of stands up and flex, you know, like one peck muscle. <laughs> and, and you're like, oh boy, you know, punishment is coming. And then Jody comes along and, and pays off the $1,000 that you owe Mike. That's redemption. Redemption is to pay off the one that you owe, Okay. Now, how does Jesus pay off our sin debt? If our sin is a fallen from the glory of God, disconnected from God, now and into all of eternity in hell, how does Jesus pay off our sin debt? It's in the next word, propitiation. I love that word. And you say, I've never heard that word in my life, right? God's righteousness is manifested in propitiation. What does that word mean? It just simply means the atoning sacrifice. The atoning sacrifice. Jesus. Jesus Christ the righteous, as the Bible calls him. The one who knew no sin became the atoning sacrifice for our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Never before or since has the world seen something so marvelous. Jesus took the wrath of God for our sin. He took the hell that we deserved for our sin. He took the punishment that we deserved in his own body on the tree. They, 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 they tied him up and they took the cat of nine tails and they whipped him. He was whipped for our transgressions. They spit in his face and they slapped him and they beat his body. He was bruised for our iniquities. His hands and his feet were nailed into the tree. And he hung there for three hours, bearing the full weight of our sin. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. Look at verse 25. He says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Forbearance is sort of like forgiveness, but not really. It's like I'm holding it back, but it's still coming. And so what it's saying is that for all, since the beginning of time, God never looked away from sin. But as I explained on Good Friday, it's as if God was placing a shot of wrath into this cup. From the beginning of time. Every single human being that rebelled against him, that rejected him, every single human being that sinned in any fashion, even the sins of the mind, shots of wrath placed into the cup of God's patience. And Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, if it's possible, let this cup be passed from me. And he stood up and, and moved forward to the cross. And there on the cross... Jesus opened his mouth and drank every bit of that wrath. Not a drop left for your sins. Not a drop left for your sins. Punished 
for sins that you forgot about. Punish the sins for sins that you loved. Punish for sins that you're still going to commit. He paid it all. That is propitiation. That's atoning sacrifice. That is redemption. That's how our debt was paid. Verse 26, he concludes again, it was to show his righteousness. You see that theme. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, now, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see how he's now just, and you see how he is the justifier for all those who have faith, who fall into Christ. It's the greatest display of God's righteousness in God's judgment for sin on his only begotten son. So what is our application? Paul tells us in verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? That's it right there. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded, he says. By what kind of law? The, the, the law of works? No. He's saying the law of faith excludes our boasting, prohibits our boasting, forbids us to boast. For we hold that one is justified by faith and apart from works of the law. I'm not happy, someone might say, because I don't have the job that I want. I, I, I don't have the family that I want. I don't live in the city that I want. I don't have the vacations that I want. I don't have the respect that I, I want. I, I don't have the successes that I want. And I deserve, pause, pause right there. Let us forever remove I deserve from our vocabulary. Christian, why are you grumbling? What, what room in the house of faith is there uh, that in which uh, uh, above the, the door it says pride? Come on in. What room in the house of faith is there for boasting? What room in the house of faith is there for I deserve more than this? The law of faith forbids it. There is no room in the house of faith for any of that. If Paul is right, and I believe he is, that through your faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, you are saved, brought into right relationship with God, then therefore our boasting is over. So let's therefore remove, I deserve from our, our, our vocabulary. But it's going to be tough because it is so baked into the way that we think as human beings. As a matter of fact, it's so baked into the way that we think that even advertisers use it in their marketing. I was uh, looking at this housing. I was on uh, Facebook maybe, uh, an advertisement for housing for college students. And it says, uh, uh, luxurious apartments for students, granite countertops, wood floors, a beautiful pool, and, it said, and the big tag was, the lifestyle you deserve. And I said, there is no college student that deserves granite countertops, wood floors, and a pool. I'm sorry. I was driving by Potbelly yesterday, downtown, and I looked on the window, and I said, there it is. That's my sermon. Big window sign, it says, you deserve free sandwiches. Look, we're told by the world we deserve all these things. We're maybe even told by our parents, by our teachers when we were growing up, by our friends, man, you deserve a vacation. You deserve this. But then the challenge is, is that we actually have limitations. You know, we have financial limitations. We can't really spend that kind of money. We can't really take that much time off of work. We got limitations. 
the, the, the challenge is, is that even if we could achieve some of these things, that they really wouldn't make us feel any better about ourselves because the things of this earth could never display in us the glory of God that is actually stamped on me. I mean, I'm created in, in the image of God. And so therefore, nothing in this world can actually testify to how beautiful that actually is. And so let, let's, let's forever rid our, our vocabulary of this, these two words, I deserve. And let me suggest that we, we replace it with three glorious phrases. Number one, I have what I do not deserve. Number two, I am what I did not accomplish. And number three, I receive what I did not earn. I have what I do not deserve, salvation. The glory of God. Intimacy with God. I am what I did not accomplish, a child of God. I receive what I did not earn, the forgiveness of God and the hope of heaven. And let me make this clear. This will not make you less motivated to do good works in this world. It will make you more motivated. This will not uh, make you more lazy. This will make you strengthened. This will not make you more docile and calling out injustice. This will embolden you because this is pride-crushing faith that then frees us to actually uphold the Word of God in verse 31. Meaning we are finally freed from complaining and therefore happy in God. When setbacks come, our response is no longer, why me? But rather, God is good. And when our successes come, our response is no longer, that was me. But rather, why me? God is good. Oh, what love could remember, no, long, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. If I could close briefly with just reminding you of a young man who cashed out on his inheritance. His father had given him the portion of his family inheritance, and that young man went and squandered it with a sinful lifestyle and parties and hookups and everything that you can think of. He found himself then broke, disconnected from his father, fallen from the glory of his father, no relationship, broke with nothing in this world. He got a job watching pigs, which was like the worst job you could think of at the time if you watch pigs, no, no, no offense. And then he thought to himself while he's watching pigs, he says, you know, it would be better to go home and to be a slave in my father's home than to be sitting here eating the, the, the food of pigs. And so in shame and with a hanging head, he slowly walked and drug his way back home expecting the glory of his father to be forever ended. But the text tells us that when his father saw his son from a distance, he took his robe and he put it inside of his belt and broke all the cultural rules of his day and he ran as fast as he could and he embraced his boy and he kissed him and he hugged him and he said, Slay the, uh, kill the fattened calf, we're going to have a party for my son who was dead, is now alive. He was brought back into the family, not as a servant, but as a son. Oh, and by the way, the son still had had no dime to his name. But he had his father. And everything that was his father's is his. Brought back as a son. Just use your imagination. And just imagine the joy that that son must have felt. To be restored to his glory. The glory of being a son. In love. Being loved by his Father. If that 
would bring you joy, even if you don't have a dime to your name, with all of your past, with all your brokenness, with all your mistakes, with all your regrets, if that would bring you joy, which would go far beyond than all of the problems of this world, a joy that is sustained even through the setbacks of life, if that would bring you joy, again, how much more so would it bring you joy to be reconciled to the glory of God? Complete intimacy, total love. Saints, don't you know that you have a restored relationship with God? And don't you know that the restored relationship with God is the height of your happiness? You still don't have a dime to your name. Bora Bora may never come, but a light has dawned in your soul. Oh, you had fallen deep into your sin. You had fallen far from the glory of God. All of the treasures of the world could never bring you the joy that you would have had in the presence of God. And if an earthly father who loves his prodigal son could bring that son joy, how much more so does it bring me joy? As God makes a way when there is no way. When nothing else could help, his love lifted me. And so I am happy in God. I don't deserve it, but he lived for me. I don't understand it, but he died for me. I didn't accomplish it, but He restored me. I didn't earn it, but He saved me. And so I will not boast in anything. No power, no gifts, no riches. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we can boast in Christ And I pray that as we do so, Lord, as we look to Christ and see the fullness of our redemption in Him, that we would be filled with joy, that our joy would lead us, God, to uh, uh, just a complete, utter lack of pride, that we would count all things to be a, a gift, a blessing from You, that we would not fall into the despair when we feel like life should be easier but that we would forever recognize that we have what we do not deserve and that there we would experience your glory, your intimacy, your companionship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.